0: Again, that's Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 29. In those days, when a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to them, him, twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of, of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Beseda. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees, walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. It's the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. I want to ask God for help So we look at his word together. So let's do that. Father, we thank you again that we can not just meet together, but meet with you. We thank you that you are here with us by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we want to hear you speak. So I pray for anybody in who in here who is not a Christian yet, Lord, that that person would hear you speak. I pray for the person who's hurting, uh, needs encouragement, that she or he would hear you speak. I pray for myself. I pray for... Each one of us here that we would hear you speak that the way we understand you and reality and ourselves would be defined by your word. And then we would also be filled with praise and gratitude for what you do for us, what you have done for us. So we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Have Have you ever had the experience where you looked back on a part of your life and you thought, oh, I was so blind. Have you had that experience? You, know, you think of um, maybe of a, a relationship you mistreated or took for granted, or you remember a choice or a, a group of choices you never should have made, or maybe there was an opportunity and you wasted it, or, or maybe you're thinking of some huge mistake and we, we often say that or think that, don't we? I was so blind. And it usually has to do with something we regret, doesn't it? And it's a profound thing to say, if you think about it. We, we look back on these moments, we're admitting something. It's a weird form of blindness, right? Because it's, it's not like we couldn't see anything at all in that moment of blindness. No, we knew enough then so that we can say now, we should have known then. It was right in front of us. But somehow, even though we saw, we couldn't see. It's as if we, sh- we should have seen, and maybe even somehow we didn't want to. And we paid for it. I don't know about you, but I have times in my life where I look back and go, I was blind. Maybe you do as well. Bring it up this morning because our text this morning is all about spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. This is just one of the many sections of scripture that tells us something we don't really want to hear, and that is this each one of us is born spiritually blind. It's not like we don't have faculties for knowing about God or faculties with which to worship God. No, it's actually part of our rebellion against God that we stubbornly don't want to see. In fact, the Bible insists this condition of rebellious spiritual blindness really is so stubborn that there's nothing we can do about it on our own because we'll never want to. We cannot make ourselves See. Well, even as I say that, I'm hoping we'll see four things together this morning. Number one, the incontrovertible evidence. Number two, the insidious problem. Number three, the indispensable solution. And number four, the invaluable perspective. Uh, I thought I'd throw out all my adjectives that I have today. And they, I know four, and they all started with I, so I wanted, to, I wanted to give that to you. But I mean them on purpose, incontrovertible evidence. You, you can't argue it. It's blatant. It's right in front of you, number one. Insidious problem. Insidious, it's sneaky. You don't quite see it. It's coming at you. Number three, indispensable solution. And by indispensable, I mean indispensable. This has to happen to you. And number four, the invaluable perspective. There's something so precious you have to see. And it's all about what Jesus does for his people in their spiritual blindness. So here we go. First of all, incontrovertible evidence. If you've been with us, we've been studying through the gospel of Mark, and Mark is working really hard to show you who Jesus is. Um. Verses 1 to 8 of our chapter we heard this morning is just another example of this incredible miracle performed by Jesus, right? You've got thousands of people gathering to listen to him in the wilderness. They're far from home. There's no resources. The text is telling you he took seven pieces of bread and maybe some sardines, small fish local to the region, And the text is telling you that from that, he started feeding people to the point where he fed 4,000 people with seven baskets left over. And they're not little cute baskets. They're like laundry hamper baskets. Seven of them left over. Just overflowing sufficiency out of nearly nothing. I mean, it's a, it's a mind-blowing claim, mind-blowing. What are you supposed to do with this? I mean, right now we're all hearing it. Look what Jesus did. What are we supposed to do with this? We well, remember chapters one to eight of the gospel of Mark, it's all about who Jesus is. That's what it's about. Who is this man? Who is this man? Verse one, Mark told us, let's remember, Mark 1, 1. Mark says, is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark tells you right at the beginning, who's Jesus? He's the Christ. That means he's God's promised king. The whole Old Testament is telling you, hey, we need this king, and he's coming. The gospel writers tell you it's Jesus. He's the one. He's the Christ. Not only that, he's the Son of God. He is truly divine. He's the eternal Son of God. It's a massive claim, isn't it? This is who Jesus is. Then Mark starts to show you. And one way he shows you is miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And the miracles are meant to stand as evidence. I mean, if somebody walked up to you and said, hi, I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. If you're like me, you'd probably think, no, you're not. What would it take to prove it to you? How about you do hosts of miracles all over the place? Would that help? I mean, these miracles stand as evidence. And we need to realize, right? Some of you might be thinking, well, it's just myth. Well, that's an interesting theory, except you'd need this document to be a couple of hundred years older than it actually is. Mark was, an eye wit- Mark was a, um, a partner of the apostle Peter. Peter was an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. Mark was written by 60 A.D. or so, 30, maybe 40 years after the life of Jesus. So here's one thing that's remarkable about this document, right? And some of you, you, anybody lived here longer than 30 years, Southern California area, okay? So what if I said to some of you, hey, you guys remember that crazy miracle worker in Huntington Beach about 30 years ago? And you'd all be like, No. And the reason would be because there wasn't one. Mark writes this gospel and says, You remember that miracle worker who went to this city, in this city, in this city, in this city, in this, this city, and healed nearly everyone all the time? The only reason we're still reading this document today is because they all went, Yeah, we remember. It's evidence. Who is this man? So chapters one to eight are dominated by this question. Who is this man? And the miracle stands as evidence. What are you gonna do with it? What are you gonna do with the evidence? What does the evidence tell you? Well, just to think a little bit more about this specific miracle, it's the second time Jesus has done something like this, isn't it? Just a couple chapters ago, uh, Jesus is with a crowd of Israelites in the wilderness on the hills and he did basically the same thing, except there were even more people for that one. And we remember that, that echoes the story of the average Israelite would treasure, right? A deep part of their understanding of themselves is they were slaves in Egypt and God delivered them with a mighty hand and then they're in the wilderness with no resources. And what does God do for them miraculously? He feeds them. God feeds his people miraculously as he saves them. Brings them to himself. And then you see Jesus literally reenacting this. It's as if he's God who feeds his people. That's what we're supposed to hear. Now here in chapter eight, he's doing it again. Again. And there there are several differences between these two miracles. The main difference I want to show you is the makeup of the crowd. In the first miracle, it's, It's nearly all religious Jews. In this this one, it's mainly pagan Gentiles. A religious Jew would see them as dirty, unclean, outcasts. We don't want to connect with them. Jesus tells you how he feels about them. They came, they gathered to him. How did he feel about them? Did Did you see it? He's full of compassion for them. His guts hurt for them. He thinks of their need cares about them, the nobodies, the outcasts, the not important people. Jesus sees them and he cares about them and he meets their need massively. So you just, who is Jesus? Well, look, no one is compassionate like him. He he busts through like social barriers. He busts through the boundaries on, ooh, not those people. He's come with compassion for All sorts of people for the world and talk about wisdom and power. I can only imagine, but what does it take to feed 4,000 people with somebody's lunch? You got to have wisdom and power like I don't understand. It's kind of like you need to be God. What's the evidence tell you? Who's Jesus? He's the Christ. He's the son of God who has come in compassion to save the world. That's who he is. And Mark says, as he writes this gospel, my evidence I'm giving you is incontrovertible, which is a long word for saying, how can you rationally reject this? It's just obvious. It's blatant. There it is, the evidence. So, as we encounter just some of this evidence, here's the, here's the big question for you sitting today, because Jesus asks his disciples this question. He doesn't just say, hey, who do they say that I am? And we could be theological and religious, and the, this group believes that, and, and that group believes that, and over here they believe this. But then Jesus wants to, he wants to pin you down, he wants to look you in the eye, and he wants to say to you, who do you say that I am? And so I hope he's speaking through me to you right now. Who do you say that I am? You need to answer that. How do you answer that sitting here right now? And then the next domino to fall, as soon as, you, as soon as you answer that question, who do you say that I am? Okay, now how should you respond to him given who he is? How should you respond to him? And that, that takes us to this next point, the insidious problem. Verse 11 when you, when you read in context, it's almost, it's almost hilarious. It's almost ridiculous. What did Jesus just do? He fed thousands of people from nearly nothing just by his own strength and power. And do you see what the Pharisees do? These religious leaders, verse 11, they come and begin to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven. Show us something to prove you're really the Christ. They want to debate. They, they demand something, their time, their way. If you do this, I'll believe. And in, and in light of what just happened, it's nearly comical, right? Feeding everyone. Show us something to prove you're the Christ. Look at his response he sighs deeply in his spirit and says why does this generation seek a sign i'd say to you no sign will be given to this generation and then he leaves the text tells you jesus basically groans with like frustration or exasperation like oh and it's not that he doesn't want to offer evidence for who he is the whole point of this gospel is to offer evidence for who he is. It's not that Jesus doesn't want to offer evidence. Here's the point. It's that he's already offered every evidence and no evidence is ever good enough. No evidence is ever good enough. So, so maybe you would consider yourself not a believer today. A good question to ask yourself would be, well, what evidence would be enough to prove to me that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God? Because if you're like, no, there's no evidence possible, maybe this is more about your assumptions then than it is about what's actually true. You see the difference? What evidence would you need? In Jesus' mind, the Pharisees are are kind of like this. Imagine somebody walking up to you like this and saying, prove to me the sky is blue. Go ahead, prove it. And and you'd want to be like, well... Look, you got to prove it to me, man, or I won't believe. That's the attitude of the Pharisees here. You got to prove it or I won't believe. Look, what, look how Matthew puts this, his account of the same story, Matthew 16, 4. This is what Jesus says. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. So, so Jesus is saying, as the Pharisees, given all the evidence they've seen for eight chapters, the fact that they demand a sign, their way, their time, he says, the issue is not that you're honestly and objecting, objectively seeking truth. The issue is that your heart is evil and your heart is adulterous. You're supposed to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the bottom line is you don't. You want to make your own way. And that's why you're demanding a kind of evidence that no one can ever meet. You don't want to believe. And, friends, that's the picture of spiritual blindness. That's what it is. You don't want to believe. You hurdle the evidence, you skip it, you twist it, you don't want to believe. They don't want to see. Why do you think we're like that, by the way? Anyway, this part, this next part is sobering, I think, because Jesus, he sighs and then he leaves. I think there's something we're supposed to learn here. And every time you hear about Jesus, whether you read the Bible, you go to church, every time you hear about Jesus, it's an incredible opportunity because you have a chance to connect with Jesus. But listen, you only get so many chances to connect with Jesus. You resist him, you ignore the evidence for who he is enough time, only he knows how many times that is. At some point, he gives people what they want and he gives them life apart from him and the judgment that follows, he leaves. May that not be us. Anyway, we see in the Pharisees this insidious problem. It's the spiritual blindness of willful unbelief the spiritual blindness of willful unbelief. So by unbelief here, I don't mean a lack of knowledge where there's no evidence at all, you've never heard anything about this. That's not what we're talking about. Unbelief here is a rebellious spin on evidence you do have. That's right in front of you. But you spin it and you rationalize rejection of God and his truth. Ultimately, why? I think it's because you don't want to submit. I mean, that's it for me. It's a picture of my rebellion. I don't want to submit. I don't, I don't want to trust myself to Jesus as Savior and obey him as Lord. That's uncomfortable. That challenges me. I would have to bow my knee to him. And right, that's the picture of the sinful heart. We resist that. I won't believe But here's where the text really shocks us, all right? Because as Christians reading the Bible, we're used to thinking of the Pharisees as the bad guys. If you ever watch a Jesus movie, I don't do that very often, but you almost know who the Pharisees are right away, right? The certain music plays, the certain costume, you're like, aha, you're bad, right? Pharisees are bad, not us. I'm no Pharisee. I'm a disciple. Here's where the text really shocks you and shows you something uncomfortable. The disciples have the same problem as the Pharisees. The disciples are blind. The disciples have been blind all this time in the gospel of Mark. And it's not... something they're not responsible for. It's something they are responsible for. They're blind, they're spiritually blind, willful unbelief. And so we remember Christianity is unique in this, right? The world wants to tell you there's good people, there's bad people. There's oppressors, there's oppressed. And we can divide and we can be good because they're bad and we're better than them and they're worse. And Christianity says, nope, you're all bad. Level playing field. None of you have loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and none of you have loved your neighbor as yourself. Before God, you're all bad. Even the disciples, everyone starts out spiritually blind. We see that in this text, in this story. In verses 14 to 16, you know, they leave so fast, the text tells you the disciples forgot to bring bread. And by the way, I personally am really happy to see this because you know what this means. Even Jesus' disciples struggled with administrative details. (laughs) Praise God. Praise God. And I want you all to know, did you see? Jesus didn't reject them for that. (laughs) There's hope for me. Jesus does caution them very seriously, but it's not because they forgot lunch. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. What does that mean? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Well, the disciples immediately think he is talking about lunch. Oh, he's mad. We forgot the bread. And still, you can imagine being Jesus. Were were you there five minutes ago? Bread is not difficult for me. It's not a struggle. Were you there? Did you see? And look at verses 17 to 21. He pounds them with questions on the same theme because he is incredulous at their unbelief. Just listen. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened, it's a picture of unbelief. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? Seven. Do you think I'm worried about lunch? Do you not yet understand? They don't believe. They're spiritually blind. And again, it's not that they can't see because they can't see. It's they can't see because they don't want to see. We know there's evidence for God. We know the evidence for Jesus is there. We don't want to see. Watch out for this blindness. Do you hear Jesus' warning? Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. So why did I use the word insidious? When you think of what leaven does, any of you ever baked a loaf of bread or you've heard of people who do this? You take this little like almost invisible thing, right? And you put it in your loaf, leaven, and it transforms the whole loaf changes everything like it's so small it's so invisible it's all oh it's not a big deal oh it's a huge deal it changes the chemistry of the loaf unbelief is like that jesus says a a willful looking away from who jesus is and it gets in and it corrupts and ruins everything beware watch out it's the worst thing that could ever happen to you watch out for the leaven of the pharisees oh and we need to hear this who are the pharisees they're religious they go to church. They have memorized portions of scripture. They want to obey the rules. In their religion, they are rebelling against Jesus. They are blind. They don't want to submit to him. Or watch out the re- for the leaven of Herod. I think that's just Money, sex, power, make your own way. Strength. Show everyone how successful you are. What kind of you're, you're the man. you're in control. He's blind in unbelief regarding Jesus. He does not want to submit to Jesus. Watch out, beware. Even the disciples are vulnerable to unbelief. This is our insidious problem, right? Spiritual blindness of unbelief a rebellious spin on the evidence we do have that rationalizes rejection of God and his truth because we don't want to submit. Do you want to bow the knee of your heart and your life to Jesus no matter what he says? Your answer to that question shows you how much you can see or not. Well, if we're blind, how can the blind come to see? And that takes us to the indispensable solution. That's what this miracle is about in verses 23 to 26. Now, you may have noticed this is one of the weirdest miracles in the Gospels. Why is it so strange? Well, we've seen Jesus do incredible miracles, even without a word sometimes and from a distance. right? We see something like, my daughter is sick. I left her at home. She's sick. And he'll say, She's healed. How do you even know who it is? How do you even know where our address is? It doesn't matter. He knows she's healed. He doesn't he doesn't need to go do some spell or some magic thing. He could just heal. But in this miracle, all right, it's almost we had this coffee pot that wouldn't quite work. He'd turn it on, and just blink at you, but no coffee would come out. And sometimes you're like, ah, uh, uh, you know, smacking it. Oh, and it starts to come out. Oh, I got the touch, right? I have no idea why that works or not. And we ended up getting rid of the pot. Is that what Jesus is doing here? He takes the blind guy, be healed. You see anything? Sort of. Oh, man, how do you do blind again? Uh, Oh, I gotta, okay. And then and then you're thinking, Mark, you're not supposed to tell people about this miracle. That makes Jesus look like he can't quite heal. What's going on here? Do you think Jesus did this, did it this way because he needed to do it this way? Or do you think he did it this way because his disciples and we need to see what he's doing here? That's exactly what this is. This is an object lesson. This is a parable. Jesus is showing you in a real and true and actual miracle what he has to do for you and me to heal us from our spiritual blindness. Because here's the thing, it's not that you need another sign regarding Jesus. It's not that you need more evidence. You don't need another sign about Jesus. What you need is for Jesus to make you see. See? You need for Jesus to make you see. So we see some of what we need. So as we walk through this miracle, look old world and see what Jesus does for this man to heal him of literal physical blindness. But also imagine you are that man and Jesus is dealing with the heart problem of your spiritual blindness. Here's what you need. Number one, you need the personal kindness of Jesus. I love how this man is blind, and Jesus takes him by the hand and leads him to a private place. You think, well, why does does Mark share that with you? I mean, just, I don't know how you see Jesus, but notice his incredible personal compassion and kindness. He could have just been like, be healed. That's not what he does. He takes him by the hand, engages with him personally, cares about him. You need the personal kindness of Jesus towards you personally. This pulls us away from seeing Christianity as just a list of facts, doesn't it? It is a set of truths, right? We can tell you what the Christian faith is. It doesn't change. It always has been. This is what it means to be a Christian. But being a Christian is so much more than just being able to write down the right facts on a piece of paper. The truth points at a real person, Jesus Christ. And for you to believe, he has to be kind to you. Second thing, you need contact with the person of Jesus. It's almost strange, right? Jesus spits on the man's eyes and lays hands on him. It's visceral. It's physical. Not too many people in the world I want to do this to me. (laughs) But if you used to see, like this man, and you lost your sight, and you've heard of Jesus, and he's the one who takes you by the hand, and he's the one who's touching you right at the source of your need. Go ahead, man, do what you need to do. And you see this personal engagement, connection. For us to believe, to truly believe in Christ, I need Jesus to spit on me and poke me in the eyes of my heart. I need him to dabble. I need him to engage. I need him to connect with me. Come get me, touch me. I need an encounter with Jesus himself. Some of you, you've converted as adults. Wouldn't, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you remember? Like, you heard about Jesus before. I've, I've seen this happen in some of you. You've heard about Jesus before, and many times you're like, yeah, no, eh, whatever. And then all of a sudden, one day, you're like, I believe. And everything's different. What happened? Well, J- Jesus came by the power of the Holy Spirit and he messed with you. <laughs> he engaged with you. You need that to believe. And as he comes to you, we also see we need to become honest about our inability. Jesus begins to work on this man, and he says, do you see anything? Some of you would have been so full of your pride, you'd have been like, yeah, I can see all right. I don't need any more help, right? Aren't you so tough, so independent, so autonomous? The idea of anyone helping you or saving you at all, you're like, no, I'll pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm a self-made woman. I'm a self-made man. I don't need anybody to save me. Maybe some advice sometimes. Jesus would be like, do you see anything? I'm fine. Well, praise God. This guy's humble enough to say, I'm starting to see, but I still don't see. You got to help me. I can't see. That's the first sign you're starting to have real faith. Right? Before, kind of in your rebellion against God, the whole attitude is like, I see. I'm a good person, I understand, I know what life's about. I'm good, I don't need a savior, I don't need a king. I'm my own king, I'm making my own way. And then you start to actually meet Jesus and the honest truth of, I don't see a thing. I'm so blind, I need help, I need somebody to save me. You're starting to see. So we need Jesus' kindness, we need his personal connection with us by the power of his spirit. We need to be honest about our inability. And then as Jesus continues to work with this man, well, he sees. And we can only imagine what the rest of his day was like. Obviously from the story, in his case, he used to see, and then somehow he lost his vision. So you imagine him going home. He used to sit by a certain corner or something and beg. That's what, that would be normal for the time. He gets home a little early. He gets to look at his wife in the face and see. He gets to see his children. It was a good day, wasn't it? Isn't it a great day when you see Jesus for the first time? And when you see him again? It's like the greatest gift God can give you, isn't it? To see to be seen, to see Jesus face to face. Well, friends, in this story, the way Marcus put this, it's all obviously on purpose. It's literary genius. What we're supposed to see is what Jesus does for this man physically is an object lesson for the disciples, and it's actually what he's doing for them in this chapter. He's doing it for them in this chapter. And so you see at the end of the text we read, he... He gathers them together, right? They, they go to a new place and he says, who do people say that I am? I'm not gonna go into all the variety of answers, 27 to 28, but the bottom line is the answers are blind. They have religiosity to them. We know Jesus is great somehow, but they're blind. They don't see, they don't see who Jesus is. And now Jesus asks Who do you say that I am? And in light of that miracle, he might as well be asking that same question. Can you see? Who do you say that I am? Can you see? And Peter finally, right? It's the high point of this gospel so far. Verse 29, Peter answered him, you are the Christ. It took eight chapters for, Mark to, or for Peter to see what Mark told us in verse 1. And now Peter sees. Big question. How did Peter come to see? Because some of us, you know, you're, we're reading Mark, and we're like, geez, Peter, kind of slow, aren't you? If only he had this spiritual insight that I do. Okay. You realize Mark wrote this gospel from Peter's perspective. Peter's showing you what had to happen even to him. How did Peter come to see? Look at Matthew 16, 16. Matthew's account, same story. Simon Peter replied to that question, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Wow, Peter, you're so smart. I'm really just glad you're smarter than everyone else. No, that's not what he says. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But who? My Father who is in heaven. Why did that blind man see? Because Jesus made him see. Why did Peter start to see who Jesus is? Because the Father in heaven, by the power of the Holy Spirit, made him see. God has to make us see for us to see. God has to change our hearts so that we want to see Jesus. God has to do it. We've seen incontrovertible evidence. We've seen the insidious problem. We just saw the indispensable solution. God himself needs to open our eyes so that we see. And that takes us to our last point, the invaluable perspective. So as we'll see next week, Peter's begun to see, but in a way, he's still seeing trees. And as we see the rest of the story, Jesus will say, hey, I'm going to die on a cross. And Peter will be like, no, that's not quite right. Let me tell Jesus about how this is really supposed to go. And Jesus will say, get behind me, Satan. Okay. (laughs) So does Peter start to see here truly and really? Yes. Does he fully see? No. It's like that for us in a thousand ways, isn't it? We become Christians. If you become a Christian, fundamentally, you've begun to see. Aren't there more things you need to see? But especially in this invaluable perspective, Jesus immediately says, right? Peter says, you're the Christ. And what's the first thing Jesus wants to talk about after that? He wants to talk about his cross. Mark 8.31 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. You have to see this. The eyes of your heart have to see this. You need to see his cross, because I think especially at the core of our spiritual blindness is pride. It's pride. I wanna be my own king I want to be my own savior. I want to go my way. I don't want to see. And that's why we push Jesus away. We don't, we don't like how who he is directly confronts our pride. Right? In pride, my heart says, I'm Lord. And Jesus says, I'm Lord. And our pride, our hearts say, I can do it. Jesus says, you have no hope of doing it. And so if we're going to see him, we have to come so humbly. And the cross melts pride. It also builds trust. So I wonder if some of you are thinking, I don't know if I can trust Jesus. I've seen hypocrisy in the church. I've seen what religion can do. I'm wary. I'm skeptical. I don't know about this. I don't know if I can trust this. Look at the cross. The Son of God took on flesh for you, for blind, rebellious you. He lived a perfect life so that you could be counted as a gift through faith in him, as right with God. God would count it as if you always obeyed. That that Jesus went to the cross for you to pay for all of your sins, to take on himself what? You deserve. He says, I'll take it instead. I love you that much. To see that, can you see that He would do that for you? Well, when you see that, it humbles your heart to trust and love Him. I don't want to be blind anymore. I don't want to live on my own anymore. I don't want to be my own king. I want Jesus, I need a savior, I have one. I need a king and a Lord, it's him. That's the invaluable perspective, it's the cross. You you learn something from Christian songs across the ages. You'll get a lot of blind but now I see stuff. There's a reason for that because for those to whom it's actually happened, it's like the sweetest thing we can think of. One example you'll all be familiar with Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. You know who wrote that? He was a slave trader. He put humans in boats, brought them across the sea, a lot of them died and he sold them as slaves. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch. He's not kidding. It's not just poetry. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. You tell me what? Was, was blind. But now, now I see. One last thing to notice. Did you see verse 22? How'd this blind man get to Jesus. Friends brought him. And did you see what they did for him? They begged him to touch their friend. Heal our friend. You're not going to be able to really see Jesus without community. Are we praying for people, working with people so that they might see Jesus? Is that what you want from your life? God has connected you to people. They need you to be a vehicle for bringing them to Jesus. Can you make people see? Not a chance. Might God use you to be the vehicle through which He makes people see? Absolutely. And not only that, are we praying for and working with one another so that we might continue to see Jesus? How much of the Christian life is seeing more of Jesus, seeing more of ourselves in light of Jesus? And we need one another for this. We need local church, we need relationships. Even think about joining a growth group. That's the heart of it. Let's see Jesus. Let's grow in love and following him together. Because this is what the Christian says, right? The evidence was there. I didn't want to see it. God in his kindness, he made me see. And I love Jesus, especially for who he is and what he did for me at the cross. We were blind, we say. Oh, we were blind. Christians also say, thank God he enabled us to see. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we wanna thank you for being so kind to us. We were hopeless, we were helpless. We were rebels who did not want to see. We've turned from you in a thousand ways, but you have been so kind. You've taken us by the hand. You've touched us by the power of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to change our hearts so that we can see so that we can believe, we can trust you, we can know you and treasure you, what you've done for us. So Lord, we pray for anyone here or listening to this who doesn't quite see yet, that you'd use the truth of your word and open their eyes to let them see. We also pray, Lord, that we would each continue to grow in seeing you more and more clearly with more and more precision so that we might love you for who you are and live in this world for your pleasure and your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.